0: Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. I think Alex said
1: it earlier. You don't want the tax tail to wag the dog. You're better off paying taxes than making a bad investment because you know how much you're going to pay in taxes. You don't know how much you can lose in making a bad investment.
2: Welcome to Rid right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Yeah, I've definitely seen it advertised more and more from syndicators. So I, I'm really happy to have you guys on because I wanted to clear some of that up because I, I don't want people thinking that they can just get in, take their money, put right. it in, and then end up in a situation where they end up owing these capital gains and they never realized that just because yeah. they didn't follow the rules, right? Because the rules are pretty complex from what you guys just walked through. I mean, you just have to follow the right steps and have the right guidance, right? So I want to make sure that we get into some of the the nuts and bolts of the 1031 you know some of the rules and guidelines so folks really understand because I know that there are pretty strict time constraints and so if you guys could elaborate on some of those for the group I'd appreciate that
3: so essentially part of the challenge of the 1031 exchange is the guidelines and the time frame you need to know two specific timelines 45 and 180. If you're into geometry, maybe that'll make it a little little easier, 45 degree angle and 180. So what essentially you're looking at is 45 days to identify replacement properties from the time of closing. So essentially you've sold the the property has been sold, the QI has received funds, the clock is now running, 45 days to identify replacement properties. And typically those are three properties of any value. Right, you can pick. So essentially, if you have sold a million dollars worth of beautiful Indianapolis properties, right, and you are going to reinvest the proceeds of that, you can choose one property in Indianapolis, one property that's a million dollars in Kansas City, one property that's in Florida that's a million dollars, not problem, right? And then you have 180 days from again from the sale to close on a property. Now it's really important to notice this is that you want to reinvest all of the proceeds because any proceeds that are not reinvested, they're considered boot. Why is it called boot? Is there an analogy to some football reference? We don't know, but it's called boot. <laughs> and that is going to be taxed at capital gains tax, right? So, so those are the two important timelines. Mike, maybe you can share about more than three properties and also Corona guidelines.
1: Yeah. So most investors we recommend, they only identify three because it's very simple. As Alex said, you don't have to worry about values or anything like that. If you identify more than three, and you would typically only do that if you were going to buy a bunch of smaller properties. So as Alex said, you sold for a million dollars, And you were going to build up a portfolio of several $250,000 properties. Then you might want to identify more than three. And if you do that, you're limited to identifying properties that total less than 200% of the value of what you sold. So if you sold for a million and you identified four properties, you're limited to $2 million total value of what you identified. Okay. You can't exceed that if you wanted to buy a big portfolio of properties that was going to be an all or nothing transaction. So you're going to buy 10 properties and you knew you were getting all 10 or you're getting zero. You could do that as well, as long as you buy 95% of the value of what you identified. So again, you can sell for a million, you identify a portfolio worth 10 million. That's fine. As long as you buy $9.5 million of uh, property in that portfolio. Okay. 95% of the 10 million.
2: So, even if you you're sitting on a million dollars of gains that you want to put forward, then if you identify you said the, the ten million, you still have to purchase the nine and a half you can't just out of that take the million and put that forward
1: well, you could if you only identified three properties oh, right okay. so yeah, so if you knew there was one ten million dollar property you were going to buy that or and you identified three of them three ten million dollar properties, you only bought one, which would be kind of hard to do without additional cash. You know, you could do that. It's only if you exceed those three properties. And that's only if you knew you were going to buy a portfolio, like one seller is going to sell you 10 properties worth $10 million, something like that. That's the only time you would use what we call the 95% rule. But typically, we recommend you stick to the three property rule. Just quickly on the COVID-19 update, they've extended the time for people to pay and file their tax returns for 2019 to July 15th. They did the same thing with 1031 exchanges. So if you have a deadline, a 1031 exchange deadline that falls between April 1st and July 15th, it has automatically been extended to July 15th. We think there might be a basis to say that you get an additional extension of 120 days if you don't fall in that guideline or even if you do, but that hasn't been proven yet and we're waiting for guidance from the IRS on that question. And we've also, as an industry, that Federation of Exchange Accommodators I mentioned is teamed up with other groups like the National Association of Realtors and some other ICSE, I believe was part of the groups that involved, to lobby the IRS for further relief. The American Bar Association also was lobbied the IRS for further relief, recognizing that this pandemic is ongoing. And even if you close today on a 1031 exchange, July 15th doesn't do much for you. You might need extensive time to go beyond that. So maybe a 20-day extension is a more fair timeline.
2: Gotcha. Do you have any sense of when or if further guidance comes out on that? 120 day extension. I was
1: hoping it was going to be every day up until today, and it hasn't been. So, gotcha. uh, okay. you know, the IRS has had their hands full with the PPP loans, and mm-hmm. you know they have a whole bunch of other stuff. So, you know, to their credit, they're doing yeoman's labor these days, and hopefully, they'll get around to us very, very shortly. So, we have some guidance for our clients.
2: Gotcha. So, we understand the timelines. We understand that you've got to stick within those. I mean, are there other things that people need to be keeping in mind that could cause their 1031 to be unsuccessful?
1: Yeah. Well, one thing about that identification period is, you know, so once the 45 days expires, you are stuck with whatever you identified. So you do not have to have a contract in the 45 days, but it's a really good idea. You want to have those bound up as and negotiated as much as you possibly can. If possible, you'd love to get due diligence done in that 45 days too, because you don't want to be on day 90 and all of a sudden run a phase one on your property, phase one environmental inspection, and you find out that it's on a Superfund site right? Because then you're stuck. Maybe you could go to one of your backups if you have backups, but maybe not. So you want to start shopping as soon as you list your property for sale.
2: And how does the identification period work going back to trying to invest in a syndication? So if you were going to sell your property, you want to go into a syndication, how does the identification period work in that? Do you have to identify three different syndications to invest in?
1: Yeah, you would. And they'd have to be specific properties, right? Because you're not buying actually a syndication in that case, you're buying a tenant in common interest. Sure. And so not only are you do you have to identify, you know, one, two, three Main Street in Indianapolis, such a property exists, but you have to identify what percentage interest you're going to buy in that property as well. So you would have to say, not that I'm buying one, two, three Main Street in Indianapolis. You'd have to say I'm buying a five percent interest in one, two, three Main Street, Indianapolis. You know, you have a little bit of wiggle room, but you want to be as close as you possibly can.
2: Understood. So again, it does add an extra layer of complication. You do have to be working very closely with the syndicator up front, yes. and it sounds like not just one syndicator. But you would have to, unless the single syndicator could have three properties. It's just that the number of properties is really what you're going after right. in the identification period.
1: Okay. And you don't have to identify three. If you know that you're going to buy that one syndication, then just identify that one. You may want to have some backups in case it falls through if for whatever reason. There's some other things out there that are good backups, which we can get into, but other products out there, but you want to kind of get it done as fast as
2: possible. So you don't have to identify three. No. But if you only identify one, you have to move forward with that one. So Correct. if you get past the 45 days, then you say, oh, actually, I don't want to invest in that one. Are you just dead in the water at that point? Yes. No, no. <laughs> I, I think just
3: to clarify, I think I understand Ken's question a little differently and just make sure. Ken, you mean once you identify a property, are you forced to buy it? Is that what you're asking?
2: No, but if you don't buy it, then you can't go get another property, right? Essentially, you've lost your ability to do a 1031 exchange.
3: Yes. And then you are going to be liable in the capital gains tax. Right.
2: Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So it's important to identify multiple. They can be all different kinds, as you said, but three seems to be that magic number. I think it would be interesting. You kind of alluded to, Mike, that there's fallbacks, maybe some other options. What would those be for investors?
1: Yeah. So there's something out there called the Delaware Statutory Trust. Okay. So... And this is kind of a take on that tech structure we talked about. And you know it's similar to a syndicated deal in some ways, but essentially, usually you'll have institutional property. It's bought by uh, it's not a re- you know, real estate management type companies will go out and buy a property. Two of the biggest ones in this industry are Inland Capital and PASCO. You know, there's a handful of others, Cantor Fitzgerald is in this space. There's a couple of those types of institutions. So they will buy a property, it could be anything, it could be a shopping center, it could be a retirement community, it could be multifamily. it could be self-storage, it's really any sector. They buy a property and they put it into a trust, a land trust, usually formed under Delaware law, thus the Delaware Statutory Trust. They then, under a red ruling that came out in 2004, can sell off beneficial interest in the trust to 1031 exchange investors. Okay. So in this case, it's, we said before, you have to buy a deeded property interest. This is the exception. You can buy an interest in the trust and that will qualify. It's as if you bought the underlying property as almost like a tick. Okay. And these worst structures ticks up until the financial collapse of 2008. And then they moved more into this, this structure. And that will qualify for 1031 purposes. So like a syndicated deal, you're away from the three T's, the 10's trash in the toilets. They're not, you know, like kind of like a syndicated deal. They're not that liquid. So you're not just going to sell it a year from now. You're going to have to wait till the entire property sells and then you're eligible and you go do another exchange. But they allow you to diversify because they, you could buy several DSTs in different property sectors or areas of the country. You can kind of tailor your investment. So if you, you sold for a million dollars, and you found a property you really like for seven hundred thousand, but you had three hundred thousand dollars of cash left over. Well, you could roll that excess into a DST to complete your exchange. And or you just choose it as a standalone. This is the property you want, you want to get out of the management. You do have to be an accredited investor, which is not that unusual in these types of deals, meaning that you have to have income of two hundred I think it's $200,000. I always get them messed up. It's 200000 or 250000 as a single person and $300,000 as a married couple finally jointly for the prior two years or have a million dollars net worth excluding the value of your primary residence. So for accredited investors, that's an option as either a backup or even as a standalone.
2: And this Delaware statutory trust is a benefit because it's something that, that exists that can always be invested in. It's not something where you have to align property necessarily. Is that right? Like the the property can exist, other people are invested in it, and you can essentially add to that. It's kind of like a like a mutual fund, if you will. In
1: a way, yeah, in a way. So the property exists, and that was the advantage over a tick structure, where you had to buy in, could have up to thirty people investing in a tick, but they all had to close on the same day. Right here, the property exists; you can close whenever it makes sense for you. You know, I mean, they do sell out. You know, so if they sell out, then you would maybe have to buy somebody's interest who's in the project, which is a little bit more difficult, but but typically if not this DST, there may be others, right? There's a steady supply of DSTs on the marketplace.
2: Gotcha. Well, I, th- I think that's a great fact for investors and, and a good alternative for folks that are coming up on the 45-day deadline. Yeah, so we it, do have a it, lot of
1: people do them last minute.
2: Yeah. Is it something that if you're, you've maybe identified two properties and then can you identify a DST as that third Option? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then
2: it can really play as a fallback if the the others don't work out. Okay, no, thanks. That's very helpful. Awesome. You guys have provided some fantastic info. For somebody that's, we covered a lot of dense information. Let's take it back up to the top for a second. Say for somebody that's just getting into investing in real estate, they're looking at deals, they're trying to understand how the process works, they've heard about 1031s, and, and there's a lot to unpack, right? I mean, what's the one thing that they should really take away today?
1: I think Alex said it earlier, don't want the tax tail to wag the dog. You're better off paying taxes than making a bad investment because you know how much you're going to pay in taxes. You don't know how much you can lose than making a bad investment. And, you know, I'd rather take the one third haircut on my profit than lose everything. So due diligence is key. I can't stress that enough. I mean, Alex and I say it over and over again. And also, if you're doing a syndicated deal, make sure you know who you're doing business with, right? Because no matter what's on paper, it's really important to find good people. And if you find good people, then the paper doesn't matter. People are going to do the right thing.
2: Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. So to round the show out, we like to do a segment called Keys to Success. Uh, I have a few questions I'd love to ask you guys, starting with, as a passive investor, if you could only ask your sponsor one question, what should that one question be?
1: I like to know track record. What have you done before? It's no guarantee, but if somebody successfully has managed properties for years, you can kind of work off that track record and then hope that that continues. And particularly if you're dealing with people who have been around long enough that they've survived a downturn, how they treated their investors during the
3: downturn.
2: Alex, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I think what Mike has just said exactly. Right? Having someone with experience is really, really crucial. Or I think that at least initially, the syndicators usually have conversations with people that are close to them. So usually friends, family, neighbors, right? So I think you just want to make sure that you trust the person, right? That's really, really crucial. Right? So whatever questions you think are best in determining trust of an individual, that's the ones that you should be asking because you're investing into the person as much as you are in the property.
2: That's exactly right. And What are you most proud of? For me, it's my kids. We were
1: talking earlier. You know, I have three boys who are all adults now, various stages of their life, finding jobs in college. And at the end of the day, that's all important. You want your kids to succeed and achieve. But the one thing I can point to with my kids that I am most proud is that I raised three good people. They all have hearts of gold. They all go out of their way to, I see them with like, they're my younger nephews. You know, they're just good people with the younger kids. They're people who are out in the world looking to help other people. I have an English teacher my oldest I have a son who's in business it helps hospitals with save money on their service contracts and things like that and supplies and my youngest is in college now and is a, is a college soccer player but has always been and all my kids have been involved in coaching and sports and helping kids who are younger than them kind of learn the ropes and so that that's I can't say enough about having good people I, we're having produced good people despite maybe some of my best efforts to screw them up.
2: that that's the most important thing
3: i'll say that we can't be proud of the same thing so i'm gonna i'll say that of course my children they're still very young so we'll see how that i I don't have the track record yet but mike has (laughs) i'm still in process right i will say i think that there are several individuals that my previous company has employed that i think really turned their life around There are individuals who were the statistics would point that they would not be able to turn their life around. They would have to go back to jail. And I think having the environment that we set up, two people specifically come to mind that was really their last chance. If they were going to make another mistake, that was going to be their third strike. And I think we, uh, we gave an environment and a job for people that other people would not provide jobs for. And It was a very special company. So I'm, I'm very proud of some of the results that we have in changing people's lives.
2: That's an excellent service. I and mean, a great story. What's the book that everyone should be reading?
3: So I'll start. I think that one of the partners that we ignore in a lot of the deals or is our spouse. Assuming you uh, present as a spouse, right? I'm going to make the assumption. I think it's really one of the books that helped us a lot, my, my wife and I, is uh, Getting the Love You Want. It's an excellent book and kind of gives you a little bit of insight about why you choose the person you're going to marry. And it's really, really crucial. It's really, really crucial as you're building a generational wealth philosophy. You and your spouse are aligned. So working in your marriage as much as on your business is really crucial.
1: Yeah, I want to put a plug in very briefly for Moby Dick. Oh, um, interesting. But I'm going to move on from that. But Moby Dick is such a great piece of American fiction that I, I think – you know, to kind of get an understanding of this country. And and I'm very into the sea and the ocean and all that. I'm a paddleboarder. And so I love that stuff. But, you know, on a business sense, there's a couple of books out there. Uh, Eckhart Tolle's book is fantastic. But I think Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is just one I keep falling back on for business purposes. If you look and you read that book and it talks about the importance of education and kind of time management, it's all in there. It's an old one, but it's something that I read periodically. I've read several times.
3: It's a
2: great choice, Mike. Right. And the last question, what's your number one key to success?
3: I'll go with my number one key to success is Michael. Right. Uh, <laughs> now I will say You're that. You're going to make me cry. No, <laughs> but what, what I will say is that mentorship is really crucial, right? Working with someone that has as much experience as he does in this area. Mike is an example of a mentor, but I have mentors in, in my marriage and my raising my children and my spiritual life. I think that that's a really crucial thing is having people in your life that you can really honestly talk to in different areas and course, specialists who have a track record. I would hardly encourage people are so disconnected and advice is so generalized that unless someone can know you in your given situation, you're missing out. So that's my one key that I have.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that, Alex. You know, so I talked about highly effective seven habits of highly effective people. If you spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, like Alex and I do, there's a lot of people that talk about time management. And I see a lot of these people. I, the one thing I often see that scares me is that a lot of people are too dedicated to their businesses. And I think you have to have something outside of making money and work that drives you. So we talked about, I think the three of us, right? Our kids, our family are so, so important, but you also have to have outside interests. You have to have some things that kind of recharge your battery. And for me, an exercise regime has been very important throughout my career. I've been a runner since I was in high school. I still run four to six days a week. It clears my head, makes me more productive through the day. But more importantly, I I just enjoy it. I enjoy that kind of time outside, being in nature. Likewise, as I mentioned, I paddleboard too when the weather permits. Both of those two things together and the other activities that I do Kind of drive me, kind of let me recharge my battery, reset, and just add purpose and value to living.
2: That's great. No, I think that those are awesome keys to success. I think both are extremely important. Mint,
3: and what's yours?
2: And tell us yours. You're the first one to ask me that. Look at this. My key to success is well, I mean, honestly, to play off of you guys, I mean, mentorship. I've had mentors in various aspects of my life that have propelled me faster and further than I ever thought I would be. So mentorship, I can't. Go beyond that i also one of mine is meditation so kind of like exercise but just spending that time each day to get focused quiet your mind helps me stay engaged stay present and be able to really hone in on what's important so meditation an is a app
3: or is it sub guided
2: i use headspace
3: headspace yep yeah.
2: I've used a few. I've done it on my own as well. The reason I like Headspace is because it tracks it for you, makes it very easy. It's not something you you have to think about. You just go in every day and and you're able to kind of update and it keeps track of how many minutes you've done it and all that good stuff. So there's some kind of gaming to it. But yeah, that has been extremely valuable for me over the past few years. As, As my life continues to get crazier, that's the thing that helps me kind of stay centered and maintain.
1: That's great because I'm terrible at meditation. I get into a meditative state through running, but sitting and Mm -hmm. meditating, I'm really bad at, so I'll have to check that out.
2: Yeah, it's something that you could start for just five minutes or or even one minute. You sit there and you you concentrate on your breath, and and that's really all it is. There's no right or wrong way to it. But it's something that I find if I don't do it for a while, I actually get almost a little anxious about being, oh, I have to sit down for like 15 minutes. <laughs> but your brain, you have to kind of unwind things and then you start to actually look forward to it and you can use it as part of your process. So yeah, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you guys so much for being here today. I think to to summarize things quickly, some of my big takeaways were... Just because you're a qualified intermediary doesn't mean you're necessarily qualified as an (laughs) investor. You need to be doing your due diligence on the organization and making sure that the organization truly has the expertise and the technology and the know-how that you guys obviously displayed here today. So I appreciate that. Don't let the tail wag the dog, right? It's better, like we said a couple of times, to pay the taxes than put yourself into a poor investment just to save on that. As we think about being limited partners and investing in syndications, it's important to understand what a drop and swap is. It is possible to get into a syndication using a 1031, but it takes a lot of upfront planning and you have to have a, a syndicator who's willing to work with you in a tenant in common relationship. right? So while it is possible, it's definitely more difficult and it takes some some additional conversations. And then we learned about Delaware Statutory Trust, which I didn't know about. So I appreciated that extra information is kind of the the fallback to using the 1031 to make sure that you are able to save on those taxes if if you haven't identified a good property. So a lot of great information today, guys. I really appreciate you being on the show. Last but not least, how can folks reach out to you if they want to learn more about what you guys do and about 1031s?
1: Yeah. So for me, email is typically best. I'm really good at getting back on my email. Unfortunately, I look at it too often. I haven't figured out that, that four-hour work week yet that Tim Ferriss talks about. I look at my email all the time, but I, you can reach me at mbrady at madison1031.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can always look me up there. And Alex?
3: Yeah. The best way to reach me is through LinkedIn. So that's a great platform to reach out to me.
2: Great. I'll make sure we include that in the show notes for you guys, but thanks again. Alex, Mike, thanks for being on the show. A ton of great info. And with that, we'll sign off. And now I hope that you all can take this info and go out and passively invest like a pro. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.